Want to advertise your business in a cost-effective way? It's time to give podcast advertising a try. Research shows a high rate of podcast listeners made a purchase as a result of an ad they heard on a podcast. Visit podbean.com slash brands to launch a cost-effective podcast advertising campaign in minutes. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com slash brands. Welcome to Yolitics, the home of cold beer and hot takes on Texas politics. Hey guys, thanks for downloading another episode of Yolitics. I'm Jason Whiteley here with Jason Wheeler, and uh, we're, we're a little alarmed. It's what what's happening in you know the city that he calls home, Houston. I lived there for eight years in a suburb of Houston. Uh, down in Sugarland in Fort Bend County, so uh, you know we're, we're both tied to it down there. But we've seen headline after headline talking about the number of COVID cases down there is through the roof, hospital capacity mm-hmm. through the roof. And Jason, you tracked down somebody who's really you know got a crystal ball looking at this thing, and it doesn't look pretty. Yeah, yeah, we're going to get the situation that's actually on the ground right now and what they see right in front of them here in just a few minutes. But we want to start off with a, a guy who leads a research team, and they're out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, of all places. But they're looking at different places around the country, and they have honed right in on Harris County because it has been a hot spot. And basically, this crystal ball that you're talking about is uh, it's a crystal ball that actually is telling them what we think we might expect as far as the covid outbreak goes for the next four weeks and so we pulled up that chart and looked at it and thought we got to call this guy his name is uh, dr david rubin he is the director of the policy lab at the children's hospital of philadelphia i'm looking at the graph that you all have for harris county right now uh and Boy, if you follow this thing for four weeks, it gets into really scary territory where you start looking at, uh, I I think it's showing July 18th as an end date right now, and it says projected cases on July 18th, 4,578, just for Harris County. Uh, That's an astounding figure. You're there in the tri-state area. You've already lived through uh, this horrendous time uh, that was had in, in New York City. Talk about how significant this kind of projection is, because, again, it is just a projection at this point. But how significant is this? Uh, It's hard to understand in a place where you haven't been impacted like you have in a New York City. Well, like I said, we've been modeling this for several weeks. And when when Harris County was down at 100 or 200 cases, uh, people were asking me, how is it possible that you're forecasting we're going to go to 1,200 cases? And you did. Mm Right. And so actually, our models have been actually pretty accurate Um, and they're based on these what we call these these reproduction numbers or the number of people infected for every individual on a given day. How how, what's the rate of transmission we're actually seeing from your cases? And then we modify our forecast based on how quickly people are relaxing and um, and and some of the temperature um, and uh, effects that we we've seen in our model, which have not been helpful at the higher temperature because people tend to gather more and that's included in our model mm-hmm. we have not seen the steep drop at the higher temperatures that might you might have seen with other uh viruses and so you know so if you actually go from you know you were at 12 1500 cases last week in in harris county and if you're looking at at reproduction numbers that that are higher 
That means if you keep doubling very quickly, you grow from, you know, if, if, if it's unmitigated and that's the big if, cause you've actually made some changes now. So right. I don't think we're going to see 4,500, um, you know, and to me, the, the question was, if you hadn't done anything, it's like, you know, we don't want to have that experiment in an American city you know, New York shut down. Uh, they had a lot more people, but they shut down. We're not trying to shut down here, but to just blow through reopening and not recalibrate around masking or those things. The question was how, how much could this grow if nothing changed? Now, I suspect this week, because your masking requirements went into effect and people probably tightened up their own behavior, which is exactly what you want to do with these forecasts, is to say, look, things are a little hot out there. Maybe I won't go out to the restaurant as much this week. I'll order in. Or I'll just be a little mm -hmm. bit more cautious with the size of the groups I hang in. And within a week or two, we suspect those uh, transmission rates will come down. The question is, is where will you peak out? Because there's usually about a week or a two-week delay from the time, the moment you make your your changes. And so time is always of the essence, but I suspect, you know, as scary as those estimates are, uh, I think this week's models and next week's models are gonna be important to see how much things have really changed on the ground in Harris and how much you've deflected and flattened that curve back. And Dr. Rubin, I noticed it's not just Harris County and you're modeling uh, Bear County, which is San Antonio, Dallas County, obviously Dallas. They both have steep rises on there too. Um, you kind of alluded to it a moment ago, but did Texas reopen too early? I think that it's not that they reopened too early. We've had other areas like Colorado that opened early. I think they, they reopened without that masking requirement and some limitations on the gathering. You know, they probably went a little bit too quickly. Uh, but I think the masking requirements to me, I can't emphasize enough how sensitive our models are and the actual experience is to the use of masking. You have areas overseas that they use masking and they've literally extinguished. So to me, the goal was always to reopen and, and I think we, we, Texas could have degraded more of their case counts if they had some of those effective barriers in place in those public locations early on. But then as they started to see increased risk, they didn't react. Week after week, our slopes were going up. Um, the estimates were going up. And yet, you know, we, we had a, an example in, in Richmond, Virginia, which a couple of weeks ago kind of looked like Dallas. It was getting an increased risk from North and South Carolina. It was right after, uh, right around Memorial Day. And we had, they had doubled, they had more than doubled. They had like quadrupled their case count from about 20 a day to about 80. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but that's when you want to make the bold moves. Yeah. And on the 26th of May, Governor Northam of Virginia instituted a universal masking requirement. Within a week, their transmission rates came down and they've actually now gotten their case counts down. Well, look well, now, of course, uh, Dr. Rubin, we don't have a statewide uh, mask order in place here. Uh, some counties have done that individually, though. Do you think that that will be enough if some of these larger counties, like a Harris County, where you're really seeing that line going straight up in the graph over the next several weeks, is it enough for those big counties to require the masks in order to start flattening that curve down? Well, that's the big question. I mean, that's why we're watching our, our, our models closely. You know, with that kind of rate of rise, we've never seen unmitigated growth like that, even in New York City, to that degree, uh, you know, because they shut down. You know, the question will be, is, will the masking requirement, some of the closures of the bars that you're seeing down there, will that be enough to deflect it back and how quickly? Uh, you know, and so I suspected with that rate of rise that it might have been necessary to hit pause for a couple of weeks and let things cool down. But I think you're going to know. I think, you know, the, uh, the governor decided to do these maneuvers. I think they're going to reassess in the next week or two, and you're going to see it in your case counts. If they're continuing to climb, 
or if your ICUs exceed capacity, you may need to, to hit pause. Uh, you know, Harris County has some of the largest health systems in the world. Yeah. Uh, and so, I, you know, the government was really, uh, they had pinned their, their reopening to maintaining capacity in, in Texas Medical Center. And, and if a place like Texas Medical Center has gotten overwhelmed, that just tells you just how nasty this virus is. Well, let me ask about masking, because back when all this started in mid-March here in Texas, um, I went to the grocery store uh, before things really exploded. And there were a lot of people, because it was in the headlines, who were already wearing masks. But it wasn't mandated by the CDC. I don't want you to answer for the CDC, but here's what I can't figure out. We, we knew all along, Dr. Rubin, this was a respiratory uh, virus. It was spread like that. And I tweeted out uh, something about being in the grocery stores packed and hardly anybody's wearing masks. I got roasted online for saying, why would you even talk about masks? And now people in Texas, their heads are blowing up where they're exploding down here over masks. How did we get it so wrong on this? Why wasn't masks the first thing we did out of the gate? And I say that as someone who's traveled extensively in Asia where they wear masks if they even have, you know, the common cold over there. How did we get us so wrong on this mask thing? Why are we just now really rolling this thing out, it seems like? Well, I think we were flat-footed in the beginning, for sure. That's a, that's putting it nicely, right? <laughs> and we certainly did not have – you got to look – when you look at Southeast Asia, they had the experience with multiple pandemics yeah. before they had SARS, and so they had prepared – they were much better prepared – um, even so, China was delayed, but some of those other those other Southeast Asian nations, they just kicked into high gear because they had been through this before because we've had a few uh, come from that area. I also think the messaging, the mixed messaging hasn't helped. In the beginning, there was a shortage of masks, and the concern was getting masks to the front line of healthcare workers. And so I don't, the, the, the messaging around sort of preserve masks for healthcare workers was helpful at the time, but it, it kind of created this, well, why didn't you tell us to wear masks earlier? And I think, you know, some, you know, what it would have been nice would have been to have sufficient number of masks for everyone and have everyone masking right from the beginning. We'd be in much better shape today. Hmm. So you guys are called the policy lab there. Um, and I'm curious, the people who make policy, do they do they reach out to you? Do you hear from people in like Texas government or uh, local governments in Texas? Does it work like that? Does does anybody ever reach out? Well, you know, we, we've been focused more regionally and nationally, but we've had people reaching out to us from other states and we've been talking to their public health departments. Um, advising. I've obviously done a lot of advising to our own state government here in Pennsylvania. We've reached out to the coronavirus task force. We've been in communication with them and sharing our models to help them kind of see some of these areas. We sometimes spot areas like Las Vegas. We saw some increasing risk in, in New Orleans over the last couple of weeks in the Kansas City area. We can sometimes spot in our forecast areas that we're a little worried about, um, even as people's eyes are trained on Harris County and Dallas and, and Arizona. I have two questions for you, Dr. Rubin. Um, first, not to overstate or misstate, but how bad is Texas right now compared to Florida and other places? I keep seeing these headlines that Texas is like going to be the or Harris County. It's going to be the new New York City. And secondly, are we in the second wave? Yeah, I think this is, the wave is sort of a semantic. Some people think you're kind of still in your first wave, right? And um, what I would say here is temperature has got an interesting effect here in terms of what we're watching. And clearly, you're you're having a wave of transmission. It's pretty bad. It, you know, Arizona, Texas, and Florida are the worst in the country uh, right now. Um, 
That said, there are some, it's a complicated story. And I think we need to educate your viewers on that, which is, you know, is the disease as severe in the summertime as it is during the winter? Uh, you know, I think there's to some degree, the jury's out a little bit. Uh, we're waiting another three or four, uh, another three weeks or so. We saw that the hospitalizations rise at Texas Medical Center. There are going to be deaths that come because of that. Maybe our doctors have gotten a little bit better at treating, we should hope. Uh, in terms of getting familiar with how to treat this, younger people getting infected and they are making the calculus that, you know, that they're not going to get as sick. They can get pretty sick and some of those people will die, um, but not as frequently as the older folks. And and one of the reasons I, I emphasize the masking requirement is because if the younger folks make that calculus and they go out to the bars and they're hanging out and we have a universal masking requirement at the markets, that sort of creates that effective shield between the younger and the older or, or more vulnerable populations that you need to try to succeed. But then the final issue is that with, with these higher temperatures, transmission may not be abated. It may actually go up as people crowd indoors in these really hot temperatures. Mm -hmm. But those respiratory droplets drop to the ground quicker. They disperse quicker in hotter temperatures. And what's good, what, what I fear is when people don't see the death rate go up as high as it did in New York, they're going to say, oh, we're beyond the worst of this. And then, and then the colder weather is going to come in the fall. It's going to start cooling down. Some areas worse than others. And then people are going to think that we're in the same situation we were in the summer. Well, yeah, it's bad, but I'm not seeing as many people get sick. And then suddenly we're going to get hit like the 1918 uh, wow. pandemic and we're going to see fatality rates begin to explode again. It's really critical. You can't let your guard down with this thing because it seems like every time there is a little bit of relaxation, it just resurges once again. I want to ask you, though, uh, because you you spend your time there at the lab essentially looking into the future. Uh, how hard is it to get other people to go there with you, uh, to, to believe what you're telling them, because I, I think that there's just this fatigue of being warned and the fatigue of staying home and not being able to go out and do the things that are, are were normal before. How hard is it to get people to hold your hand and kind of go walk along with you four weeks ahead from now? Well, we do a lot of validity testing. I mean, obviously, they're forecasts. We don't always get them right. We talked it. We, we message a lot through our blog. I think people have enjoyed our blog where we talk about never rely on a single forecast. We're Certainly humble enough to know that models can be wrong. That said, they are, they're still the only models that we've seen that really are forecasting at the local level. And we've mm -hmm. got folks like yourself and all over the country talking to us. We do a lot of work behind the scenes to understand the decisions and what's happening on the ground. And I think that leaders, uh, you know, as, we, as we've seen some success, we spent a lot of time validating it, it, it like looking two weeks ago, what were, was our prediction and how well we did. If anything, we've undershot. And we've been careful to be a little biased to underestimating because our goal is not to over alarm, which is what made the, the estimates in Harris County so concerning to us as well as Arizona. We, you know, if you look at our, what we call our actuals versus our predicteds, um, they tend to undershoot by 100 cases or so. Like, and I'm happy with that because we want to give the general message but not scare people. Um, and and so I think people have developed some confidence with us that we're calling it as we see it. We rely heavily on what's actually happening on the ground. And so it, it lends some value in terms of understanding what direction you might be headed in if you kind of use other data points as well. I think it's interesting that you say that you were alarmed when you saw it because you see all kinds of data coming in and, and not all of it is, is pretty these days, obviously. Uh, what was your thought when you first saw this graph that I'm looking at right now that you all have put out looking four weeks into the future in Harris County? 
and that dotted line just goes straight up again, that can be revised over time and can change over time. What was your thought, though, when you saw that and you're thinking about this is a major metropolitan area, has a huge black population, a huge Hispanic population. Those have both been considered at-risk groups. Uh, what was your thought when you saw that? Well, as a healthcare professional, my first thought is if, if te- Texas Medical Center better brace itself because if they're at 80, 90 percent now and you double from 1,500 to 3,000 cases, it's not that incremental, okay, an extra 60 a day, we're going up an extra, suddenly you're going up a few hundred a day. And are your emergency departments ready for that? You know, you're already at stretch capacity. If you actually unmitigated went to that kind of doubling, uh, then you would have had, uh, you know, potentially the Northern, Northern Italy on your hands where you had mm-hmm. people coming to the emergency department who could not receive services. And that is every governor's nightmare. Um, around the, around the country, you know, the idea that whatever happens, we're going to have a bed for every individual or a ventilator for every individual. And so, when I saw those numbers in Arizona, my terror was, what's going to happen if we see that playing out in an American city? Let me ask you about the uh, uh, kind of the future, where we go from here, Dr. Rubin. Are people wearing masks between now and the time the vaccine comes out in the market, whether that's eighteen months or five years from now? What is the, what does it look like the time between now and the vaccine? I think it's smaller groups uh, hanging out together. I think it's, um, you know, I, I talked about the trade-off of the inconvenience of that mask. You bring it with you on your purse, and if you go into a market, you put it on. I actually had a vet say to me the other day, I was talking to a bunch of county commissioners who said to me, Dr. Rubin, you know, a number of years ago, my country did not give me the choice. It told me to go to war, and I went. I think I can handle the inconvenience of having my country tell me now I got to wear that mask. And it was very moving to me about, you know, uh, uh, you know, in terms of the American spirit. But I think we just have to get used to that inconvenience and we, we have to not fatigue. I know it's it's annoying to have to schlep that mask around all the time, but it's just a minor inconvenience to wear it in the markets or when you go into a retail store, when you're outside and you can space with your friends, you're sitting in your backyard, you're making decisions about how much risk you want to take with the friends you hang out with. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about these public indoor locations. And, and if people can acculturate to that, it's going to be great. I think our restaurants, you get to the restaurant, you can expect that they're going to provide you some hand sanitizer, that they're going to ask you to wear your mask on en route to the table. But once you sit down, you take your mask off and all your servers are going to be wearing masks. These are the kind of new normals that we have to get used to. And if we do these things and we kind of maintain our crowd size and cal- calibrate our risk a little bit, that's what we're going to have to do until until the uh, vaccine is here. And I think we have a lot of experience now to know that it can work pretty well. It is amazing how simple it can be to start getting that scary graph to not look so scary. And it really is a a personal responsibility. And I say that as somebody who has walked into places forgetting the mask and have gotten an earful and deservedly so. Uh, But uh, it it really is simple. Wear your masks so that you can make Dr. Rubin's job a whole lot easier there at the uh, policy. Uh, I mean, I'd be happy to be put on business. (laughs) You probably need a vacation, man. Exactly. So this is one guy you don't want out of a job right here is Dr. Rubin in Philly there. But I, I'm, I'm thankful that the folks in Pennsylvania are at least keeping an eye on us down here uh, with what's happening in Texas, Jason. And you know what? Uh, there are some people who have a personal stake in that. I was talking to him and uh, half of his team, he says, 
is from Houston. Uh, you know, Houston's such a you know huge player in the, in the medical field, and so you find Houstonians in uh, in these big medical centers all Everywhere. over the world. And half of his team there is from Houston, so this is very personal for them. Uh, it might be personal for you as well, listening. Uh, and whether or not you're in Houston, you can actually go in if you're in one of these target cities that they've been tracking, and you can find out what they're projecting for your big metro area. We actually have a link to it. It's in the description to this podcast down below. Uh, You click on that. You click on the state that you're interested in, and uh, hopefully your county is listed there. Uh, And if they're tracking your county, you'll be able to see it. You click on that, and then you you click on that blue bar at the top that says projected cases for four weeks. And then, you know, depending on where you are, you take a really deep breath uh, because, again, in some places, it's looking kind of scary right now. Uh, but hopefully, like he said, Jason, some of these measures, some of these reversals that we've seen here in the state of Texas uh, in the last week or so, hopefully that will start to pay off. Hopefully we'll see some of these mask ordinances that have taken place in uh, local areas start to, to make a difference yeah, as the well. The information is really easy to find. and Just use the link that's in the description of this podcast. And there's data, there are trend graphs showing the data for uh, Bear County, San Antonio, Dallas, uh, Denton County's in there, Travis County, Harris County, all the major metropolitan areas and many of the large suburbs, Montgomery County, Fort Bend, uh, Williamson County. I believe those are in there as well, too. So it's, it's a really good, you know, 30,000 foot view of what's happening in the state and what might be happening over the next four weeks. But what's happening mm-hmm. now and ground zero for COVID, the, one of the worst places, San Antonio has a bad, but the worst place right now, clearly, is Houston, Harris County. Uh, James McDevitt is a doctor, and he's also the Senior Vice President and Dean of Clinical Affairs for Baylor Baylor College of Medicine uh, there in the Texas Medical Center in Houston. And when Dr. Rubin and Philly said the Texas Medical Center better brace itself for what's coming, we thought we'd give Dr. McDevitt a call. If you could just kind of give us an idea of what you're seeing real time right now there in the Texas Medical Center. Yeah, so let me put it in perspective just a little bit. We've been dealing with this since February. And around April, we looked at the growth of viral cases in Houston, and we were on the Lombardi, Italy trajectory. And we were, we were scared that our hospitals would be overrun, that we'd have the sort of health system failure that we saw in Lombardi in, in New York City, and did a ton of planning around that. Uh, then we socially distanced, slowed down the Houston economy, uh, things got better. And then as we started to open up again, it was inevitable that we were going to see growth in the virus again. Well, now we are seeing growth with the vengeance. Uh, and the growth rate and the numbers are actually three times what we saw when we were back in, back in April. So that's the bad news. Uh, the good news is we've been at this now for four months. Uh, and we've done a lot of, uh, a ton of advanced planning in terms of hospital capacity and physicians and nurses and having the right people in place and ventilators and PPE. Uh, we've learned a ton of lessons from looking at what's going on around the world. So everybody's actually much calmer now, paradoxically, than back when we were uh, seeing much lower volume, but much more much more anxious. That, that is not to in any way uh, take the uh, sense of urgency off the need to respond and get this under control, because it still is a really significant public health problem. Mm-hmm. Dr. McDevitt, you called uh, this you know, rate that it's rising at concerning. I'm curious, 
Is this the second wave we're seeing now, or is this still part of the first wave? Uh, you know, I, I get that question a lot, and to be honest, I'm not sure what that means. And, and in some ways, I don't really care whether this is a, a wavelet or a, or a, a second wave. Uh, we, we, the, the, the thing about the virus you have to keep in mind is it, this is like uh, you've got a pile of dry kindling, a pile of dry sticks, and the virus ignites it. Well, it's going to catch every stick on fire because everyone's primed. That's the virus. We have a population that is largely not immune to the virus. And still today, as much illness as we had, the, the population is not immune to the, the virus. So all we do with social distancing is to push the sticks around so they don't catch each other on fire. Hmm. As soon as we start pushing them back together again, they're going to ignite again. That's that's just the nature of the nature of the beast. Uh, so the, the sad reality is, I think we will be dealing with this dynamic of waxing and waning and outbreaks and on a regional basis and, and and moving around the country. Uh, and you've heard the same old mantra: uh, until we have a vaccine, until we have an effective treatment, until we reach herd immunity. And herd immunity probably means seventy to ninety percent of us are infected, and that's a long, long way off. Uh, so in some ways, unfortunately, this is going to become business as usual for uh, for a good long while. That goes right into what I was just about to ask you next. So uh, originally back in April when, when you all were really worried, then we shut everything down here in Texas. Uh, and then we heard people clamoring to get back to work, understandably so. So many people, you know, had their, their, their own micro economies messed up. The state's economy was messed up. The state opened back up. Now we're seeing another big surge again. Is, is there a way for us to be able to be open and to have an economy and avoid this uh, from happening over and over again? Yeah, I think there absolutely is. Uh, and, uh, and a little bit of good news. I'll get a little technical for just a, just a minute, if you bear with me. Uh, a lot of this is driven by something called the r naught or the R0, mm-hmm. uh, which is the infectivity of the virus. And what that means is on a statistical basis, if I catch the virus, and I'm out in the community, how many other people do I tend to infect? And back in April, that number was probably 2.5 to three, maybe even a little bit higher, which is, which is very, very infectious, much more infectious than flu. As we started social distancing, part of the effect of distancing is that R value goes down, just because I'm seeing fewer, uh, fewer people. And it got down to about one. Uh, and that was not enough to eradicate it, but it was enough that we got to an equilibrium with the virus. Well, we weren't seeing more, we weren't seeing less. It was sort of at a steady, steady state. Well, sure enough, and, and, and this is confirmed by looking at cell phone mobility data around the, the state, uh, as you saw us open up and as you saw cell phone mobility go up, you saw that R value start to, to climb. And that got up last week uh, to, again, about 2.3, maybe 2.5. Five, a pretty high R value, just like it was in April, which is what's driving this. Cell phone data I saw today says we're we're trending down, or maybe already back at one, based on the changes we made. So, so just what we've done already should have an impact in helping to stop the spread of the virus. So that's part of the answer. Yes, we we don't have to fully shut down the economy. Uh, the the other point I'd make is, frankly, remember the big message here: masking works. If we're masking in public spaces consistently, if we are all taking personal responsibility for physical distancing from others, and if we take personal responsibility when we have symptoms that we're not exposing ourselves to others, not showing up to work sick, uh, not showing up to school or or crowds uh, sick, uh, that in and of itself would be enough to to slow the spread of the virus. Uh, And Mm -hmm. and we wouldn't have to shut anything down. Now, Now, that didn't work. We tried that, and for whatever reason, not everybody 
um, took it seriously enough or the, the uh, uh, but, but now our numbers look worse. I think we're getting better educated. I think we'll learn how to do this better as time, as time goes by. It's the only way to be open. Yeah, absolutely. But we can. That's the good news is we can. That's it is possible. You mentioned something early on in the conversation here about how not only we're better prepared, but we're a little more calm than we were 90 days ago as well. Is that changing how we? Well, that's a really good question. And, and, and for a second, put yourself in the pretend you're a healthcare provider in a hospital taking care of COVID-19 patients. In April, part of that experience was, I'm not sure I'm gonna have an N95 or a face shield or a gown to take care of these patients because we had shortages of PPE, that, that I'm actually putting myself and my family at risk by delivering this care. Now we've got good supplies of PPE, we've got a run rate calculated, we've got good preservation strategies in place to, to preserve PPE. Uh, so that's, again, we still are concerned about it, we still have to keep our eye on that ball but we're not worried today that we're gonna run out of PPE. That's a huge relief to, to physicians and nurses and, 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 and people taking care of patients. I think a second issue is, this is a strange disease. You, you come in, people get really sick. There's a, sometimes a massive inflammatory response. They don't seem to ventilate in the same way when you put somebody in a ventilator that, uh, that a typical patient does. So that's scary in itself. Uh, and in April, we had no treatment. I mean, absolutely nothing. There was supportive care, but no intervention. Now we have remdesivir, which you've heard about, is the antiviral agent. Uh, that actually has been proven in cl clinical trials to work. It's not a cure, but it shortens length of stay. It shortens ICU length of stay. So that's a positive. That's something we can do. We have the convalescent serum trial now where we take, uh, this, is a, this is literally more than a 100-year-old treatment uh, where you take the blood from people that have had the infection, take their serum, filter out the antibodies that they produced to the uh, disease, and then give antibodies, transfuse them like a blood transfusion into a patient who's really sick. Uh, and that has a benefit for sick people. Uh, so we are developing interventions, and to a, to a physician, that makes you feel much more comfortable when there's actually something you can do to, to help. So I think, that's a, I think that's a big difference. I think a third big difference is for whatever reason, the patients seem like they're just a little less sick uh, in this uh, environment. Uh, and uh, they just don't, when I, when I talk to physicians anecdotally that are on the front lines taking care of patients, they've all made the same, or most of them have made the same observation, that the patients just don't seem as critically ill. Now, don't get me wrong, they are still really, really sick, uh, but not quite like it was in April. And part of that might be, it's been well documented now, that this tends to be an infection of younger uh, people. Uh, the, uh, the number of positive tests we're getting back are much more in the 20 to 40 age range uh, than, uh, than previously. Uh, and I also want to emphasize this is still a very serious disease for younger people. So it's not a good strategy to go out and try and get infected so you'll be immune. Uh, but younger people tend to be less severely involved than, than people in their uh, 60s, 70s, and, and 80s. So maybe that's part of what we're, what we're seeing. 
Dr. McDevitt, can we talk about available beds? Uh, because I saw something, I, I, I'm, I'm from Houston originally, and uh, I have a lot of friends down that way. I was on Facebook the other day and somebody said, wow, the Texas Medical Center, you know, largest medical center in the world is running almost at capacity on ICU beds. And then the fight was on. And I mean, this thread just stretched like a CVS receipt. I mean, it just went on and on where people were saying, well, what, but what about this? And they have surge capacity and not all of those are COVID patients and other people saying they don't all have to be COVID patients. It's a matter of how many beds are available if you get sick or something goes wrong with you today. Where are we right now with the capacity, particularly in the Texas Medical Center? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question. Let's, let's talk about that a little bit because it's a really important uh, issue. Uh, the bottom line is we have ample capacity now to take care of patients. Uh, and it's uh, again, there was a discussion last week among the CEOs of the major hospitals and uh, that I think was well publicized uh, regarding the data that was published in available hospital beds and, and a number reported that 100% of the beds were, ICU beds were, were full. Uh, so I, I don't want this to be a disrespectful or trite example. It's maybe not the best example, but I, I think about when I go out to my favorite restaurant for Mother's Day lunch. Uh, I walk into the restaurant. The restaurant has added additional tables. They've ordered more food. They've hired more wait staff, uh, and they give me the same dining experience that I have uh, when I'm there during non-Mother's Day uh, time. Again, kind of a tried example, but that's what hospitals do. I mean, hospitals have a way of creating capacity by adding beds, adding ventilators, monitors, and qualified staff to take care of patients. And yes, the hospitals in aggregate were at, they were full based on their normal capacity, but they have ample capacity to expand. And in fact, the, the sort of easy expansion uh, for COVID-19 patients in ICUs in Houston as of last week that number was equal to all of the patients with COVID-19 in the ICUs at that time. So we could, we could literally double the number of ICU uh, patients, uh, which again is not, the, is not to take our eye off the ball that if, if we have explosive growth of the virus for two, three, four weeks, then you do have to start thinking about uh, the hospitals getting into capacity trouble. Right, right now we are fine. Uh, and if I did just make one other point, the reason why that's such an important message is because when we went through this the first time, it was well documented that people delayed seeking necessary medical care. Suddenly, people with myocardial infarctions, with heart attacks, stopped showing up at hospitals, or people with strokes uh, stopped showing up at hospitals. Things that we have treatments that are life-saving or help to prevent disability uh, and nobody thinks that people stopped having heart attacks or strokes. We just think they stopped seeking medical care. Uh, so the, the, the danger of, of scaring people, uh, we don't want to scare anybody. We want to be open, honest, transparent with information. That, that, that's sort of our duty to the community. But if you err on the side of, of scaring people, then you're going to chase people away from the hospitals that really need to come to the hospitals. And it's safe to come to the hospital, and we have capacity in the hospital today. If we err on the side of saying everything's okay, don't worry about it, uh, then we take the heat off the public to really take the public health issue seriously. So it's it's sort of a delicate needle that has to be has to be thread. The the governor's order has only been out. The new order has only been uh, active for what four or five days now, with the masks and the bars closing and the restaurant capacity reduced to fifty percent. Does that mean we're still going to see? kind of some of the virus that was in the pipeline, if you will, and things might get worse in the next week or two before it gets better? Uh, yes, I think we will. And that's not 
a failure and that's to be expected. So I would warn everybody. And again, this is my prediction and, and y'all watch the same new shows that I watch and, and, and you, my, my prediction is as good as anybody else's or as bad as anybody else's. Uh, but I have watched this thing really carefully in Texas since February. Uh, and I fully expect what's going to happen because remember the, the incubation period of this virus, you, you catch it, you carry it around with a period of time before you become symptomatic. So there are people that are already infected that aren't going to show up for 10 to 14 days after they're infected. So in general, when we put something in place like a community masking uh, expectation or we close bars or we limit restaurant attendance, uh, that impact is, uh, won't show up for about two weeks after you make the, the change. So my prediction is we're going to see our numbers continue to climb throughout next week. And my hope is that towards the beginning of the next week, uh, that we'll see things start to, to level off. And the cell phone data I uh, cited seems to indicate that we're doing the right thing, that, that we, can, we can take that, uh, we can make that impact in the viral growth uh, without taking more draconian steps to shut down the economy at this point. You know, uh, when you talk about looking at that modeling, uh, we just got done talking with the uh, policy lab there at the uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. You're probably familiar with some of the modeling that they've been doing for different local regions across the country, including uh, for Harris County. And even they said, you know, when they first saw the numbers recently for Harris County, they were alarmed by what they were seeing. Uh, I'm just curious uh, what what your thoughts were or your colleagues' thoughts were when, when those numbers came out showing, you know, that, you know, sometime middle of July, we could be seeing 4,000 plus cases a day in, in the Houston area. And is, did that, does that sort of a, a warning uh, uh, bell wake people up, do you think? Yeah, well, it, it, well, I think there are two components to your question. Does it wake up the medical profession? Well, yeah, I sure hope so. And I guarantee it does. So we, so we see those numbers go up. And we saw the trend, I think, well before the trend became publicized. Well, that means we have to get serious about how we're going to create additional bed capacity. Uh, it means we have to think about how I get a qualified critical care physician at a patient's bedside when we need that uh, expanded capacity. Uh, it means we have to do things to avoid uh, the, uh, uh, I read an article in the New York Times back at the height of sort of the New York crisis, and it was a, uh, a story about a psychiatry resident that had been repurposed and taken into an ICU and was managing patients on ventilator, ventilators. And the whole thrust of the story was how incredibly guilty she felt about taking care of a patient because she really wasn't qualified to do what she was doing. Well, we, Baylor College of Medicine, we, the institutions of Texas Medical Center, early on in this thing said, we, we are not going to let our trainees, our residents, and our students get into that situation. So we, we did a lot of advanced planning around creating an appropriate workforce, making sure we got physicians available, bringing in physicians from outside if we, if we need to. Uh, but that's, when the numbers started going up, it was, we weren't panicked necessarily, but it caused us to go back and look at the hard work we had done back in April, dust it off, uh, and, and get ready. And, and I think we are, I think we are ready. I think we're well prepared. A lot of reporters like to be able to see the future. I'm not very good at that because um, I've missed a lot of things. I shouldn't go to Vegas either. But one thing that I did not expect in this, Dr. McDevitt, is the partisan fight over face masks that we're seeing in a public health crisis. What would you tell those folks out there who still think it's their individual right to to or to not wear a face mask? 
Well, I, I think I've got two responses to that. I, I, the, uh, I mean, one is face masks, face masks specifically. Uh, there is a ton we don't know about this virus, a ton of unknowns, uh, around which there can be honest disagreement. Uh, the efficacy, the, the impact of everyone wearing face masks in public places is not one of those things. Unequivocally, it works, it makes a difference, it halts viral spread, and it is not that I am fiercely independent and I have a right to do whatever I want to because I'm taking on the risk. That's not really what the issue is. The issue is that I get infected, I infect someone else, who then infects my 81-year-old father who has a really serious problem with the, with the virus. This is about halting community spread. So unequivocally, masks work, period. Uh, and there's great literature to back that, back that up. I think the broader question is, uh, this is, uh, this is going to sound Pollyannish, uh, but you sure wish we could get to the point that uh, the, this is not about partisan bickering. The, the, the reality is, uh, unless you are 115 years old, uh, this is the first global pandemic that any of us have experienced. Uh, and nobody knows what they're doing. Everybody's making up the rules as they go along. I think there is an, uh, a, uh, a very honest political divide uh, from between the extremes. Do we shut down the economy and maximally protect people uh, and sacrifice the economy? Or do we throw caution to the wind and throw the economy wide open and forget about the coronavirus? Well, obviously, both of those are wrong choices. Uh, we, we can't act at ever, either extreme. But I think there are very well-intentioned policymakers on the right and on the left coming to work every day trying to take good care of their communities that may lean towards one solution or the other and may get that balance and, and, and frequently won't get that balance exactly right. Uh, but we do what we think is best, we make a decision, we move forward, uh, and we learn from it. And I think that's what I see people on the left and right doing right now. And I think there is absolutely no value in looking backwards and second guessing decisions based on the data people had. It's, in retrospect, it's easy to criticize, like it's easy to Monday morning quarterback. It's a lot harder when you're making those decisions on the front end with limited information and a lot of unknowns around how the virus is going to behave. Really, this comes down to personal responsibility and the ability to adapt if the situation becomes something that you're not comfortable with. Because I think we've all walked into places, even recently, where you look around and it seems like just as many people as used to be there long before this, and maybe half of them are wearing a mask, maybe not even that many. Yeah, so I, I said before, key things to remember, mask, distance, don't show up in places when you're sick. That, that, that's the big three. I would add to that, uh, same thing. I, 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 honestly, I've not eaten in the restaurant since February, uh, but I've gotten a ton of takeout. Uh, and I have seen places that do this really well. And I've seen places where everybody is uh, shoulder to shoulder in the bar and no masks and like nothing ever happened. What I've encouraged people to do is let's start rewarding those people in our community that are taking this seriously. Uh, and there is no way to do this well if it's not visible when you walk in. You, you should know that something is different in the business. And my advice would be is if, if it doesn't feel different, you should turn around and walk out, uh, period. I think another important piece of advice is uh, we sort of have to assume that everybody we meet is infected. And it, it, it sounds harsh, but it's true. Uh, in a hospital, people have HIV, they've got hepatitis, they've got bloodborne infections. 
Uh, well, when we know we're going to be exposed to blood or body fluids, we don't test people to figure out if they're infected with one of these things. We have universal precautions. We assume that everybody's infected. And that's sort of the attitude we have to have in the community with COVID-19. We have to have universal precautions against uh, inhalation of, of virus. Uh, so whoever you meet, you have to assume they're infected, and that's if they're asymptomatic, that's if they don't have a fever, that's if they got tested two days ago and had a negative test. We just have to, to really keep our vigilance up and, and protect ourselves and others. Dr. McDevitt, uh, Jason just said it a moment ago, but he is from Houston. I lived in Houston uh, for a long time in Sugarland. Um, I'm convinced Houston has the best restaurants in the world. Hmm. Absolutely. So yeah, you haven't right. been out to eat since February. When, when this thing breaks, man, where are you going? First restaurant, where is it? Oh, gosh. Well, yeah, you, I didn't know you're, you're on the spot people. here, man. Yeah, ask me politically <laughs> difficult questions. <That's> <laughs> it is a political podcast. <laughs> oh, boy, 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 put me, boy, put me on the spot. I, 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 will, I would probably say we like Hugo's, which is a Mexican uh, restaurant yes. uh, mm-hmm. in the corner of Kirby and, uh, and, uh, and Westheimer. Uh, yes. That's one of our, our go-to places. Good. A lot of good places down there, man. So I, I agree, you know, Houston has so many, so many damn good places to eat, man. Taquerias. Uh, I thought you were going to agree to Hugo's. Is that what you would have I'm chosen? Just, I'm a lowly reporter, man. I'm, I'm not a, a dean of clinical affairs, so I, I can't afford <laughs> Hugo's. I, I know plenty of taco taco places down there. Uh, El Tiempo is a, is a great place. Yeah. I don't know if you ever uh, went to El Tiempo, but uh, Keneally's. Yeah. Where is Keneally's? It's the little uh, little bar over there on, on uh, Shepherd, or I can't think of where it is. Yeah. Uh, Alabama, somewhere right in there. Uh, there are so many good it, eats uh, to be had. Dude, yeah. I think w- and hopefully one of these days, you know, when things get all normal again, we can actually go and do yeah. that again without having to think about it every time you walk into one of these places. I gained so much weight when I was in Houston, and uh, <laughs> that's the reason. But nevertheless, it happens. Um, there's a serious situation in Houston, and, and we're thinking about our friends there. We're thinking about our friends in Bear sure. County. You know, uh, uh, what, one day over the weekend, Bear County had 795 new cases. That is a hell of a lot more than Dallas County had too. So it just shows how serious this is, Jason. Yeah, and I've lived in all of these places. And so you do have a personal connection to all of them. And, you know, we're all Texans uh, when we get down to it. And and you hate to see it happening to anybody and to have anybody uh, getting it really bad right now. I was encouraged, though, by the fact that he said that, you know, there is still a lot of capacity. Obviously, we don't want to fill all of those beds. But it is, uh, I think, a little bit reassuring to some people to hear that beds are available. But, you know, those uh, people who've been working in those hospitals have been working like crazy so don't make them do that work even if they have the beds available and just you know do your part to make sure that this thing doesn't keep spreading as badly as it is and there's some very simple things that all of us can do right now and he said that he was calm that things were a lot more calm than they were 90 days ago Mm -hmm. the medical staff has kind of caught its breath that that Mm -hmm. means a lot to me man i i feel a hell of a lot better hearing that from these guys on the front lines yeah, you want them to be in a good place. Yes. And, and and one other thing that I put in my back pocket from, uh, from Dr. McDevitt was uh, if you walk into a place and it seems like nothing has changed and it's business like 2019 style, walk back out. Get out yeah, of it. Any of those restaurants that you frequent. So make sure you, you wear your mask, Wheeler, when you go out, man. Yes, huh? I do. And I've gone to takeout only again now. I, that's all I'm doing. <laughs> 
I'm serious. Or, you know, making it at home. Yeah, no, absolutely. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Yolitics. We appreciate it. Remember, uh, we, we love to hear feedback, comments, criticism, compliments, whatever you think. Uh, you know, leave it for us there in the, uh, in the feedback. And we'll see you guys again next Tuesday. Thanks, as always, for listening.